Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast, the podcast that Flannery O'Connor and Dostoevsky listen to while they drink their tea. Welcome, Laura Heeman. Thank you, Clark Massey. Okay, we've got Kansas City and Hyattsville news that kind of became national news to talk about. We're going to start with um, my bionic arm. We're going to move to the Attorney General of uh, Maryland dropped a report on the Baltimore Diocese sex abuse charges during Holy Week. We have Walter Reed Hospital in D.C., which is the big medical army hospital uh, for the nation, (laughs) not renewing a contract with priests in order to hire lay people to do Catholic ministry. We also have a big discussion that's kind of interesting. We're going to talk about videos that you're seeing on uh, kind of more conservative types of podcasts about urban decay, moral decay. We're also going to talk about school shootings and the racist shooting that uh, happened in Kansas City. What do you call it when it's like not proven yet? If we're being real journalists, what do you say? The alleged racist shooting in Kansas City. We're going to talk about statistics. And there's some interesting statistical errors that we all kind of fall into with anecdotal evidence. And we want to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about what it would mean to have a truly Catholic foreign policy or political policies in general, and why it might not be quite as extreme as you first think. Uh, We'll comment on China and Seth Rogen. (laughs) A lot of ground to cover. Yeah. All right, Laura, what do you think about my new arm? I find that little red piece like kind of creepy, like the eye of Sauron. Um, or I don't know. There's a kind of RoboCop if, vibe. If this to thing it. had a blinking light on it, or it could make a little sound effect, it would be worth so much more, you know. But like people already are asking me to like lift heavy things. Like I have a bionic arm, and it's like actually I'm on a half pound weight restriction on that arm. That's why I'm wearing this. Yeah. Not because I'm 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 joining the transhumanist agenda. <laughs> And getting and becoming RoboCop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting how many people have mentioned RoboCop. Like that movie's really held up. Yeah. Has it? Or it's 80s. just that we're old, Clark. I I don't know. Well, that- other people in society mentioned it to me. I don't know if the youth are watching it. Right. No. Like, did anybody below the age of 35 mention it to you? No, and ha- but I still think it says something that it's so emblazoned okay. on the memory that every yeah, robot, robot movie <laughs> afterwards, no one is reciting that. They're all yeah. citing RoboCop. Well, it is. It is. Know. It is very RoboCop. Anyway. So <laughs> this is just the next phase of my um, arm saga, yeah. my repaired bicep tendon. Uh, this seems to get a lot of clicks for us. So we have to talk <laughs> about it every episode. Right. We've got 10 more weeks of this. Okay. All right. Let me lay the stage for the um, or set the stage for the um, new report that came out of Maryland about the Baltimore Archdiocese. So we have covered um, church sex abuse in depth. If you want to really if you're trying to get to the bottom of it, I suggest you listen to a podcast series we did about uh, nine months ago. And it's a multi-part series. And we've got about five hours of content where we go deep dive. Yeah. Right. Now, the basics of this are. This is a nationwide issue that happened in every diocese, and this is like the maybe third particular report after the Pennsylvania report, and I think there was one other, of a certain diocese or state Mm -hmm. scandal, you know? Um, There's actually not new information in it, in a sense. Like, there's some very interesting information about particular abuse um, things if you want to read about particular child abuse. Just highlights, you know, how sort of depraved some of the cases of abuse were 
you know, and it's like if it's presenting any new information, it's like type of abuse you hadn't imagined yet. Right. But it's it's like the abuse we all knew was happening. Right? Yeah. So essentially, big picture in 2002, the scandal breaks. Mm-hmm. If you were paying attention and trying to get to the bottom of it, then you realize it was nationwide. It was not Boston. Yeah, I mean, worldwide, um, worldwide, truly. Yeah, I don't know that I knew that in 2002. Okay. Okay, fair. Right. In 2002, uh, the the bishops across the nation acknowledged this was a big problem. Mm -hmm. It was not a Boston problem. Yeah. And a large number of reforms came down the pipe then. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we go forward like 18, 20 years. And now we've got the Pennsylvania report. Mm -hmm. Now, there's actually no like new like reform that comes out of that. And actually, the Pennsylvania report acknowledges that the problem was basically fixed in 2002. So. Let's talk about this per- report and see if it says the same thing. Um, I did read it. It Essentially, what it's saying is, yeah, this report is tracking all the abuse cases that they have any information on. These things are not convicted. Yeah. This has not met the standard of like um, beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a much lower standard on that. And it categorizes 150 cases from 1940 mm-hmm. to now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe any of the cases are in the last 20 years. And the report definitely acknowledges that after 2002, the church has been essentially reacting to all of this correctly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's good to know. So you should feel good about that, but you always feel bad when you read about these things. The church made really sweeping changes in 2002 that, that have been shown to work, right? There's, I I just want to say like somebody might have an example of no, I heard in 2010 or whatever, but overwhelmingly the church made, good corrections that have worked right yeah like you're always going to have a criminal activity somewhere but are you actually cracking down on it and reading it out yeah and since 2002 we have yeah so all right so that is a big takeaway that once again another attorney general cites that the reforms of 2002 were a success Mm -hmm. all right the other things to know about this is one this did not hit the national news the way the Pennsylvania one did. Mm-hmm. That's great because we're only on like the third report and every state could do this. Every diocese could have a report like this. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we could literally have hundreds more of these. And if every time it happened, it re-traumatized everyone, that would be very bad. Yeah. I don't sense that like until you mentioned it to me, Laura, I didn't know this had come out. Mm-hmm. You know, right, the Pennsylvania thing was huge. Yeah. In the footnotes. Oh, when did it come out? That's kind of interesting. Yeah, it came out. It was released during Holy Week, like right before Easter. And I some people feel like that was a little bit of a political shot. I think whenever we're looking at these things to assume the best motives by the people who do them is is not correct. Yeah. Like the very people who designed our government did not assume the best motives of the people. That's why we have separation of powers and checks and balances and all these other things. You're not actually supposed to trust the system. Yeah. You know, yeah, um, I think the person that first suggested to me that this was a sort of political shot is a person that I think was very wounded by the report and some of the knowledge that she previously had. (laughs) You know, it's not the person you would expect to be, you know. Oh, I think anybody who looks at this with, you know, an unbiased filter has got to say more than likely that was a political shot. And I think sometimes a political shot is just to make a big name for the attorney general. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily some huge grand conspiracy. It could just be a kind of a petty thing. Yeah. You know, but all right. Now, I didn't think the report read that badly. What the report is, is it starts with kind of a general summary of the history of Catholicism and the diocese. It talks about the history of child sex abuse both like as 
the legal history of it in Maryland. And that we need to talk about because that was interesting. Yeah. And in a footnote, it warns that they're working on another report for Washington and another port for Wilmington, Delaware, because both the Washington and Wilmington, Delaware diocese spill over into Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the only other two dioceses in Maryland. It's like Baltimore, Wilmington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. So here's some interesting takeaways that kind of in an interesting way, collaborate some of what we were talking about um, in our when we first reviewed sex abuse in the church. It was not until 1963 until child abuse was illegal in Maryland, and then it was only kind of partially illegal. It did not mention sexual abuse, and it had to be abuse that required medical treatment at a, at a treatment facility. Otherwise, it wasn't considered child abuse. Now, that doesn't mean you could, say, murder a child or rape a child because those were still other laws that mm-hmm. aren't child abuse laws. They're just general laws, right? But rape was only defined as a man raping a woman. It was not a man-man thing. And there was certainly nothing illegal about molesting kids in 1963. Just to note, this report goes back to 1940. Yeah. So if you have someone molesting someone in the 40s and 50s and early 60s, not illegal. Yeah. You know, there's actually no court case there. Yeah. No matter what, criminal or civil. Right. Then in 73, 10 years later, they say, okay, you could be abused as a child and not require medical treatment. Mm -hmm. Still doesn't deal with sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And then in 74 is the very first time sex abuse of children becomes illegal. Mm -hmm. I think that for most of us, that is shockingly recent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So any molestation case before 74 is actually not illegal. Yeah. I remember one of the things that like a viewpoint from the McCarrick report was the mother of these like boys and some of the commentary that she had was like, I think it was in the 80s. She was like, I didn't know what this was called. Like, I didn't have the language for that. It's not a thing people knew about or talked about. This Um, is true. Like people didn't know the word pedophile until shockingly recently. Right. Same way with like words like anorexia are kind Mm -hmm. of recent words. Yeah. Right. Um, Not that they didn't exist. It's just they weren't named. You know, I've seen like in ancient documents, like with the Desert Fathers, mm-hmm. warnings against child sex abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, But it's very cryptic and you have to kind of like read through it yeah. and they don't have a word for it. Yeah. You know, and not having a word for it, like just thinking, I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone knew molesting kids was wrong before 74. I, I, you know, right. I just don't think they had, they didn't know that if it was worth breaking up families over, they didn't know if it was worth, which sounds shocking to us, you know, but they didn't know like really how to talk about it besides creepiness and things like that. Yeah. I, I think I, I got the sense when we, th- there was that woman and there was like a, the Southern lawyer in the McCarrick report and they both like, didn't really know, like you say, people knew it was wrong. I, I got the sense that people didn't really totally understand that it happened unless there was like <laughs> a more direct well, experience. Well, I think of there it. were certainly some prudish people or people who'd never thought of it, but it was, I mean, I think it's been a problem of humanity since ancient times. And so I think people paying yeah. attention knew it was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if you were right to say like a good fraction of the population was sheltered enough they didn't know about it. That yeah. could be true. Yeah. But I don't think it's like, we discovered what molesting no, people right, was right, in the seventies. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I've dealt with people from other cultures. Um, like I, I was talking to a priest who was a priest in Honduras 
And he talked about how that society did not think child sex abuse. They weren't doing anything about it. Yeah, they right? weren't. Uh-huh. Well, like people were coming to him and telling him the problem and he couldn't do anything about it because the society wouldn't do anything about it. Yeah. And they needed like a police force to come in and do mm-hmm. something. And I've also dealt with people who talked about how their family solved a sex abuse problem mm-hmm. um, without involving police. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think that was a very common thing. Yeah. And and that's interesting, though, by the way, because everyone in Maryland's basically an automatic reporter. Now, I didn't yeah, know that until I read this. Oh, but really? Like, really? Yeah. Like everyone. Like Not if you think like... a child's being abused, you are under okay. legal. Um, that According to this report, that was the way I read okay. it was that it wasn't just like trained social workers, which is kind of more normal, are automatic reporters yeah, and teachers, teachers are automatic reporters. Um, it was yeah. basically everyone is. Mm. Yeah. Um, except for clergy and confessionals and things like that. Yeah. That was like, there were some exceptions, yeah. but, um, okay. So that's kind of interesting. I think it also just shows that the consciousness of this abuse has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked, you know, if you listen to our old stuff, like we talked about how the humane society was, um, about protecting animals, but it also started protecting kids mm-hmm. because there weren't these laws in place. Yeah. Wow. Like the case that's interesting is this woman who worked for a church was visiting families And realized this poor girl was getting just horribly abused. And she went and told her family, I don't know what we can do. This kid's getting abused and the police won't do anything because they call it a family matter. And that was the common take until recent times that this is a family matter, not a public matter. Yeah. Right. And then somebody told the lady, she goes, I know some crazy animal rights people who will rescue (laughs) mules if they think they're being abused. I think they'd rescue her. Yeah. And they did. Wow. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> it's animal rights people who started protecting children, and that's why they're called the Humane Society. Wow. I think that's pretty cool. Um, all right. So can we big picture this? Yeah. All right. The reforms of 2002 appear to have worked. There's no new information on this unless you actually just want to read about the particular, particular cases yeah. of abuse. The suggestion at the end of the port report deserves discussion. This is a suggestion that's been made in other areas, too. So the statute of limitations in Maryland appears to be 20 years. So you have until you're 38 years old to report that you were abused as a minor. 20 years after you become an adult, not 20 years after the crime happens. It said 38. Yeah. No, I I think it was similar in in, um, math. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the report, the attorney general saying, I think we need to lift this. So that 50 year old, because the average reporting of abuse is often happening people late in life, Mm -hmm. you know? And he's like, I think we want to lift this uh, statute of limitations. Yeah. So there's no statute of limitations for like rape and murder and things like this, you know, but for the civil cases where you get to sue someone, there's a statute of limitations. Yeah. Right. And I am troubled by the idea of repealing the statute of limitations for the Catholic Church or for anyone because of what a civil trial is. Mm-hmm. Right. The civil trials are not really held to the same beyond a reasonable doubt standard that a criminal trial is. And it's very difficult to think that, like, to me, civil trials have a couple purposes, right? To right a wrong, to create a reform, because, like, you know, now that you've been sued, you have this incentive Mm -hmm. to, like, fix the problem, you know? But there also has to be justice, you know? Yeah. And if there was, like, especially strong cases that are more than 20 years old, I'd be okay with it letting those cases go forward. Yeah. But like, it's very difficult for someone to defend themselves on something that happened over 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 
I had something where I couldn't figure out a charge on my credit card and I thought it was fraud and it was like from three weeks ago and I was looking at all my calendars and trying yeah. to figure out what I did that day and like was I actually there or did I go to a store yeah and like it was just like very difficult for me to reconstruct a day three weeks ago yeah right and knowing how faulty human memory is and also how yeah. people create these narratives of their lives and it's very dangerous to deal with really old cases yeah. I just don't know that like letting someone who's 50 sue for something that happened 30 years prior. I mean, further, I don't know yeah. that it fixes anything. Yeah. You know, we already believe the church has turned itself around in 2002, yeah. 20 years ago. And I just don't know that that case really ends up helping. And I'm not sure that our legal system's good enough to create justice on incidents that are 30 years old in general. I just think that the bar of evidence needs to be really high if they're going to repeal the statute of limitations. Yeah. What was good about this, by the way, was he wanted to lift it generally because there's been states that recommend lifting this for the Catholic yeah. clergy and church, yeah. but they don't want to lift it for public schools. They don't want to lift it for anything else besides the Catholic church, yeah. the statute of limitations. Yeah. Because if you followed us for the public schools are very guilty of this. Yeah. And, and of, and of uh, like exponentially bigger. Yeah. What were you saying about um, the number of people removed? Oh, I, <laughs> um, I read in 2017, 500 PG County. That's in Maryland. That's the county I live in. Um, PG County is known to be kind of dysfunctional, but um, 500 PG County school teachers had been removed um, for allegations of sexual misconduct. Um well, it wasn't it just abuse of any type, not just sexual. Um, the first thing I read was abuse of any type. The second one about the 500 teachers I thought was sexual misconduct. But let's say let's say it was abuse in general, because I, I don't remember exactly. Right. Um, let's say a big part of those are, are bull or kind of offenses that people like I, I think. Yeah. Let's just say 10 of those people are guilty Yeah. or 10 people a year are yeah. guilty just in PG County. Yeah. Right. If you went through the whole state of Maryland, that yeah. number's got to be 10 times that. Yeah. Because PG County is one county. In we Maryland. have more than 10 counties in Maryland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So, but let's just say 10 is the number, right? Yeah. This report on the Catholic church covers 80 years. Yeah. You know, if you had 10 a year in a public school system, that's 800 people. Yeah. This report is cited 150. Yeah. The problem for my research in public schools is is a lot greater than the Catholic Church. And I, I'm kind of like, let these attorney general reports come out about the church, but let's do it with the schools and every other like big institution. Like I, I yeah. Right. And but, you know, part of this is, like I said before, I mean, you're not really ever meant to trust the government, you know, but yeah. like these are government schools. There's like a, kind of an industrial complex to protect them yeah. also, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And the church in some ways is out of favor, but they're not. So yeah. I don't know. Like it's going to be not necessarily a fair application. Yeah. And it is too bad because that would actually probably like the same way the church had a good reform in 2002. Right. We need those reforms in the church, in the schools. Reform. Yeah. 100 percent. Like if you care about stopping child sexual abuse, <laughs> let's go to where, you know, um, it's it's mainly happening right now. Um when we were researching for, for our church sex abuse, other podcasts, there were like a couple of things, like opinions I previously held that changed. And one was that, well, I think a lot of people think this is like a Catholic church problem. And like, I, I understood already that it was a wider problem, but maybe didn't have a good sense of how wide the problem was. Um, but the second thing was, well, people would say like, oh, well, 
other institutions have this problem, but like the Catholic Church covered it up and that's what makes it, you know, so bad. And every institution has the incentive to cover it up and, and like it it seems like the the have, you know, so um not every institution, but I, you know, yeah. one of our conclusions when we were working on that was that this is actually just a problem of institutions, right? right? Yeah. And the Catholic Church being the most institutional of churches yeah. will kind of have an extra dose. Like we're running more hospitals, more orphanages, more schools than any other church yeah. by far, yeah. right? So we're going to have more cases because of just the amount of institutions we run, right? right? But I think, I think what you were mentioning, there's a sense in which you're like, hey, they're holding us to a higher standard please hold us to that high standard. Yeah. But there's also just like, this is kind of creepy and weird that they're not like investigating all these other groups. Yeah. It's hard to believe it's like, um, when you see it, it's hard to believe it's not a vendetta against the church and, and that it's actually like you care about stopping child sex abuse, you know? And I, like a lot of people really do want to stop child sex abuse. There's a lot of people working tirelessly for that, you know, but like, I want everything to come out in the light about the church because I want it to become a better, healthier place, you know, uh, but like it, it's bizarre to me. Right. All right. Let's go on to the next story. Walter Reed Hospital. We are going to get to more positive stuff in a future podcast. Kidding. All right. We're going to try to be positive about this. <laughs> this is another church meets government <laughs> uh, thing that also partly unfolded during Holy Week. Um, so interesting parallel, but Walter Reed, uh, military hospital, um, for like the last 20 or so years, the Holy name friars that are in Maryland had been, um, fulfilling the like Catholic pastoral care duties. Um, and they had a, a contract with Walter Reed recently, um, that contract expired and, um, Walter Reed did not renew it with the Holy Name Friars, but instead with like a secular company called Mac Global. So they, Mac Global does do, um, some religious staffing, but they also do things like telework solutions, transportation, admin services, professional training. So anyway. So I think there's a couple big picture things to kind of know to set the stage for this article. One is that there's a military archdiocese in the Catholic Church that mm -hmm. was set up by JP2. Mm -hmm. So there actually is a diocese for yeah. service members mm -hmm. that has priests that yeah. work for it, right? Mm -hmm. Another thing to set the stage for is the army does employ chaplains directly, mm -hmm. not as contractors. And there are priests who serve as chaplains in the army. Yeah. Now, what this is, is a contracted position, not a staffed, like, you know, like government pay grade position. So that's one of the ways the army saves money on everything from like repairing tanks, mm -hmm. mechanics, and things like this. Now they're doing it also for spiritual services, right? And historically they did it with a group of Franciscans, which makes some sense because they're priests mm -hmm. and it appears to have had the blessing of the military archdiocese. And now the military archdiocese is like time out. <laughs> you just hired a bunch of randos yeah. who can pass a catechism test to do Catholic spiritual services at your hospital. Am I summarizing that correctly, Laura? Um, right. And I think salt in the wound just as it unfolded was that the, the, the contract terminated like <laughs> right before Holy week and Easter services. And, um, the military archdiocese tried to like get it extended, you know, um, just to go through the Easter masses. And instead the friars were sent to like cease and desist, um, 
because uh, I, I guess they kept going even though the contract had expired to continue ministry oh, with the people. That's an important point we hadn't mentioned because like we were talking about like, would they go for free? Yeah. I mean, if they kept going, they were yeah. going for free and they yeah. were sent a cease and desist order. Mm-hmm. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad. Uh, I mean, it is like a military hospital, so yeah. they might have different like uh, guest right. policies mm-hmm. than most hospitals, you know? Um, yeah. So I see this as a bigger issue, a bigger issue of kind of this commercialization of spirituality, right? Yeah. And I would start with that issue originating at the universities. I like 20 years ago, I was meeting people who were getting spirituality degrees and they weren't of any particular religion. Mm-hmm. And it was just very strange. And it, I was talking to someone who worked at a retreat center and they said, oh, yes, I'm getting my master's in spirituality. And I'm like, where? And they mentioned it. And I can't remember the name of the school, but it wasn't like an obvious Catholic school or anything. And I go, well, what do you mean spirituality? And they're like, oh, we study all the great mystics, like the Hindu mystics, St. Teresa of Avila, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, how can this be a valid training? Yeah. yeah. You know, like it sounds like you're taking like one class in karate, one class in jujitsu, yeah. one class in taekwondo and calling yourself a master of martial arts. Yeah. It would be better to send in like a bunch of grandmas that have lived life, right? Than sending like these. Well, that and like, frankly, I would rather a rabbi who's a very devout rabbi come yeah. visit me for spiritual services yeah. than a dabbler. Right. Well, right. My, you know? And my, my point is like somebody who is like more like focused, dedicated in their faith would have had to wrestle with some of the um, difficult questions of life, you know? Um, right. I, yeah. I also think there's this issue that was like this weird hubris of the spirituality programs where it's like, how can you think that you're getting the meat out of Teresa of Avila if you don't believe in sacraments? Right. And don't believe in the Eucharist. Like, like, like she believed in that so deeply and her spirituality is generating out of that. Yeah. That you're somehow going to like skip something she thought was necessary and glean out like all the great insights of Teresa of Avila. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense as like a methodology, mm-hmm. you know, as an academic methodology. Yeah. Right. Like you almost have to submit yourself to the religion in order to get the insights of the religion. Mm-hmm. And the whole program's designed to not let you do that or not require that. Yeah. And yeah. I'm I'm worried that these people now become the army of people who need jobs because they all have professional degrees in spirituality. And I saw this with my father who went through hospice uh, last year. And I think this also could be what's happening at Walter Reed, which I think is just crazy. So an example, hospice, right? My father was dying. We get hospice. Now, hospice is an interesting thing paid for partly by the government, at least. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's getting his own room. He's getting a different type of nurse, a different type of doctor for palliative care, into life issues. And then they start sending us spiritual people. Mm hmm. Now, thankfully, my dad um, had been kind of out of it for a long time, so he didn't have a close relationship with a pastor, But and he also wasn't Catholic, although he would go to Catholic church all the time. Uh, but the Catholic priest from down the road came and was awesome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He was not part of hospice. He just came because we asked him to, yeah. and he didn't know my dad, and he didn't know us, but he was great, you know? Yeah. But the hospice spiritualists would come in, and we kind of didn't know what to do because it was like... They kind of wanted to talk to us, see if we could, they could spiritually help us. One guy, they were very different people. Like one lady 
was, thought her job was advocacy. Another guy thought his job was to bring a guitar and sing. <laughs> they want to sit with my dad and sit with us. And I mean, we asked some of them to leave just because it was like, yeah. we're grieving here with my father. Yeah. And <laughs> it's nice that you yeah. came, but like, I don't want you in the room for the next hour while we talk about family issues, yeah. you know? And it's just like, what is this? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these people are literally billing by the hour. Yeah. And is that what Walter Reed has just bought into? Like, instead of having a priest in sacraments, we're just going to like hire a bunch of spiritual people to come in and do this thing. That's a spiritual service, kind of like counseling. Well, I, I kind of wondered, you know, and maybe Catholics don't understand this so well either anymore. Like my, my impression is that in, in days gone by, like there was a sort of broader cultural knowledge that like Catholics had special requirements. Like if a Catholic was run over on the road, they needed a priest, you know, um, and Catholics needed to go to church. Um, every Sunday. And I think you're right that like there may have been a little bit of a broader knowledge, but I think there's something more suspicious involved where it's like, Oh, the Catholics think they need a priest, but they don't really. Cause that guy doesn't do anything. Therefore yeah. we can just send in this person and they should be satisfied. Tell them they'll be satisfied. Right. I don't know. I think you're right that it could be a little sinister, but I think it could also just be like <laughs> a weird, like understanding of what religion and belief is that we don't have like a very moored <laughs> understanding of that as a, you know, um, or respect for it. Yeah. Like, well, how can you respect it if you don't know what, what it is? Yeah. I think you're, I think you're making it too innocent. And I, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying that this is an aspect of it. I think the other part is there too. Like I, it's like you work at a military hospital. You should obviously know that the Catholic patients want the sacraments. Like that's like, that should be obvious to you. Right. So I think in that part, it's sinister. I feel like it's this though. Like say that I don't know what Jewish kosher law is. Mm-hmm. So I serve the wrong meal to a Jewish, yeah. to a devout Jew. Yeah. Right. That's not really what's happening here. Right. I think it's like, I know what Jewish kosher law is and um, I just don't think it's important. I think if I say a Jewish prayer over this meal, it should be good enough. Yeah. And I'm going to serve this meal. You know, I think like the military diocese and the Franciscans are probably being very clear. Sacraments are important. And they're saying, we just disagree because we don't believe in your sacraments. Yeah. Right. I feel like that's, it's just a different respect for what religion is. Like I respect the Jewish desire to eat kosher and I'm not going to try to like half, I'm not going to try to like subvert it, you know? Right. Like, but there might be then also alongside those people, kind of some ignorant, well-meaning people that are like, oh, well, this sounds nice, you know? Well, um, I think, I think you're saying that maybe they don't think they're like persecuting Catholics. Right. Um, right. But I'm thinking that their respect for religion is so low that that's a persecution of itself. You know, their respect for what it, what we believe is so low that that is so disrespectful. It doesn't matter if they're actually angry and trying to stamp out Catholicism. What I'm saying is I just wonder how many people in the equation don't realize they're even denying Catholics something that Catholics want. I I think that your claim is not possible because the military archdiocese has protested. Yeah. I mean, legislators are protesting. There's just a lot of protesting happening. So to act like they're ignorant is like to, to be too generous it's like they're not even trying to persecute us. They just so disrespect us they could do this. <laughs> I, I want to say, yeah, religion broadly, but yeah. 
So a representative from the military archdiocese called this an emerging trend and also said um, that it's becoming a common practice of bidding out pastoral care for military personnel and it turns ministry into a racket. I, yep. I think that's like a big takeaway here. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I almost feel like it's an industrial complex, right? you know, and what I mean by that is like with these hospice spiritual people who are coming in, right? They're sincere enough. You know, as far as I can tell, yeah, they, yeah. they didn't seem like right. they were right. I'm like sure. bad people yeah. inherently, right? But they had a professional degree. They needed to feed their families. Yeah. This is how they chose to do it, right? Very much like the gender equity inclusion people who bloat all the university staffs. Like they got a degree in it. Yeah. There must there needs to be a job for it. Let's create this job right. for it. And the staffs are huge and you know, screwing up the cost of higher education and other things, and they're also just not doing any good. Yeah. Right. And um, it's just part of the commercialization, as he put it. But I think of it as like, once you start entrenching this, it's very hard to take away. Yeah. You know? All right. Let's go on to our next topic. This next topic is about statistics. It's about urban decay. It's about moral decay. It's about um, different things that you see anecdotally in the media. And we just want to talk about that, like kind of like from perspective of statistics and one of the things that interests me is I see a lot of conservative podcaster types who sample like pretty rough stuff, you know, and they call it urban decay. Mm -hmm. And it's like just videos of people getting beaten up in the inner city, yeah. um, stabbings uh, where no one goes to help the person. Yeah. Um, just like stuff that's pretty horrible. And the same kind of right wing uh, I, by the way, I don't consider right wing a pejorative. I'm just saying they happen to be conservative. Yeah. You know, podcasts will also show things where like they'll show kind of the attitude of women that are like, um, I'm going to use an antiquated word so we don't offend anyone, a very floozy attitude, <laughs> you know, and then they'll kind of then some of these people actually not all, but some uh, almost like justify a certain misogynist attitude based on all these floozies who are posting videos. Yeah. You know, yeah. and there's some statistical issues here. Like, for example, I looked at kind of a diagram of like the total population of the U.S. is about 330 million. Yeah. If you look at kind of a demographic pyramid, there's about 20 million w women in the U.S. that are in their 20s. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I told you that 99.9% .9 of them were upstanding moral women with great sexual ethics and a loving heart, mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be a very healthy nation. 99.9% mm -hmm. yeah. of your 20 somethings were that way, right? Yeah. That still leaves 20,000 women to post <laughs> crazy floozy stuff on TikTok. <laughs> and if they only each make a couple viral videos a year, that's a lot. You can, you can keep your conservative podcast busy yeah. All day long talking about the floozy nature of women yeah. of, in their 20s in America today, yeah. right? And they do this also with violence, you yeah. know? Now, having said that, that does not mean we're not in a moment of urban decay. Yeah. It just means that we're videotaping more than ever before. Yeah. And the idea that you're able to find shocking videos on a daily basis it's, is not evidence. Yeah. Alone. I think people are more afraid of kidnapping now than they were a few decades ago, even though kidnapping... A happens less. <laughs> right. And like, I think the kids that get kidnapped by strangers is like less than 1% of kidnappings. And the kids that get kidnapped, period, is already a tiny percentage 
of the children. Well, right. right. Yeah. So, there's a lot of like just custody battles between parents. Right. That's what most kidnapped. kidnappings yeah. are. But even still, the children that get kidnapped, even in custody overall, it's a small percentage of American children. One percent of that small percentage are kids that get kidnapped yeah, by strangers. I think, I think what also is interesting is this idea of mass shootings. Because yeah. I think the thing that's really disturbing us today is school shootings. Yeah. Right. And something that was similar that was like when I was growing up was um, post office shootings. They used to call it going postal. There yeah. were so many shootings at post offices. Similar, yeah. you know. And um, this is not just an American thing in a sense. Like America, what we seem to be having fairly regularly is kids shooting up schools. Yeah. Right. Um, not middle aged men, not yeah. women, not grown women, but like kids. Right. And um, like in China, though, they have this other problem of middle aged men taking knives into schools and doing mass stabbings. Oh and there's gosh. actually videos of like Ugh. them trying to stop mass stabbings in schools. Yeah. And that's become like a, you know, a sensational problem in China. Yeah. Right. So this is like an issue and it's real. Yeah. Right. But have you noticed that they've been kind of redefining mass shooting? Because I think when we hear mass shooting, we think school shooting. But now it's like any type of drug deal that goes bad where three people get shot, it's a mass shooting. I, I think that was that has been the case for a long time. But because mass shooting is now on our like a school shooting is obviously not a drug deal gone bad on the corner. Right. But but yeah, but, yeah, these are very different things. Yeah. I remember reading an article maybe even like 10 years ago uh, explaining what a mass shooting was in D.C. Like the D.C. law considered, you know, right. This number right. of people. So, right. So if you see these numbers that are like, there have been so many hundred of mass shootings in our country, yes. everyone thinks, you know, mall, school, whatever. And it's not, I mean, there's a disturbing amount of those, but it's not necessarily that. Right. Yeah. It's a bit, it's a different problem yeah. um, with a different cause. Yeah. And it's also a different horror level, yeah. you know, to, yeah. to us, yeah. you know, um, but let's talk about that. Cause I think statistics have an interesting role here too. Um, I've talked to psychiatrists who say that one of the very hardest things to do is to take one of their patients and decide when that patient might become violent. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that that's almost an impossible ask. Let's talk about that for a second. Like, is there a way to, I'm, I'm bringing this back to st statistics here in a moment. Like, let's say that you could tell when they'd be violent to 99% mm -hmm. accuracy. Yeah. And let's make the type one and type two errors the same where like every person I can with 99% accuracy tell if they could be a mass shooter or not, or a school shooter, either one, right? Well, let's take school shooting because that'd be a smaller number. So yeah. there's maybe like a population of people in the U.S. out of our 330 million, there's only a certain fraction of them that might ever shoot up a school, like mm -hmm. 100 million. Like some kids are just babies, they can't do it and whatever, mm -hmm. right? So out of that 100 million, how many of them might have it in them or might have a mental issue that could lead to this? Mm -hmm. A thousand? You know, a thousand would be a lot because yeah. that would be... Because if most of them did it, yeah, there'd be a whole lot of like this type of sh school shooting, right? More than we have, right? right? So a thousand's the most, yeah, right. Now, if ninety nine percent accurate test means that you would get nine hundred ninety of them, you could say take away their Second Amendment rights, yeah, right, leaving only ten left. Yeah. Like you were did a pretty good job yeah. weeding them out, but you'd have to do that test on the hundred million, yeah. Right. You could be locking these people up in a mental asylum. You could be just taking away. You could create a special gun control measure. But if you did it on the hundred million, then one million people would lose those rights or be locked up in a mental institution. Right. And of that one million, only a thousand actually have the capability of doing it. And therefore, if I took a random person who lost their rights 
there's a 99% chance that it was uh, an error that they lost their rights. Yeah. You know, this is just kind of a weird problem that I feel like is in the background of these discussions. Mm -hmm. And some people kind of realize that about the whole, like, even if you're very fair and there's no political bias, if your test has an error term, you're going to end up hurting far more people, you know, um, who would have no capacity for it. Right. And that's interesting because a lot of people are like, but who cares? You know? Yeah. And we can talk about that later. I just kind of wanted to talk about the stat side of it. Mm-hmm. And typically our legal system is based on the idea that uh, you err on the side of not denying rights. Yeah. Like it's better to let some guilty people go than to take the rights away from someone who is innocent, basically. You know? Yeah. I, I wonder if the sentiment, if that... I, I think young people, it's flipping. I agree. Yeah. I think the sentiment's changing. Yeah. I'm hoping to invite somebody on to talk about, we've been asked to talk about school shootings and I have maybe you and I have some other opinions about that, but I'd like to have someone on who maybe knows a little bit more about uh, security options mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're inviting someone like that. We'll see if it works out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I do believe urban decay is happening. And yeah. I think to have that in perspective, Uh, There's like two issues, like one, just the rapid rise in the murder murder rate ever since 2020, Mm -hmm. like it's grown like 30%. Yeah, and it hasn't gone back That last I checked, it was 30%. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah. That is a sign of real urban decay. Yeah. Right? You're also seeing um, eateries or restaurants like fast food joints just close their dining rooms in urban centers, you know, because they're just now all takeout. That's a sign of urban decay. Yeah. Um, I think the one of the scariest signs is you're seeing people walk by people. Yeah. Meaning like a video came out of a man getting stabbed in front of Starbucks uh, and he died. Uh, other Starbucks patient, uh, you know, customers don't even get up. Yeah. I you mean, know, the they man, don't get the up man run. films it instead of films it. Like he films yeah, the altercation. And there's a guy filming it on yeah. his phone while it's happening. Also not assisting the man who's dying. Yeah. And there's a great fear there. The other two examples are there was a shooting in Kansas city. This allegedly Racist shooting probably mm-hmm. was racist, it mm-hmm. seems, you know, where a man shot a black youth who um, went up to the wrong house. He was trying to pick up his shot siblings. Him. Yeah. He shot him. Uh, and even if you think all the details of that story are wrong, the kid had not entered the house. The kid was yeah. shot through a glass door. The kid, um, there's just no evidence that you could invoke castle laws or stand your ground laws. Thankfully, the kid lived, by the way. Yeah, this is but incredible. Like, he he was shot in the head. He he was down the on arm. the ground and then the guy shot him again. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a fairly big caliber bullet. Yeah. When I heard he got shot in the head and got out of the hospital in like a day, like he, I was like, what, what the heck? Yeah, was this yeah, like, like a tiny bullet? So it must, it, thank God it wasn't fatal or did... Yeah. So much damage. But the point there is like, even if you think all the details are, they keep talking about stand your ground laws. There's nothing about this that's about stand your ground. Well, I mean, stand your ground the, is like, if you're being threatened, you have the right to use lethal self-defense. Okay. So that's what is going to probably be argued in court for this man. Did he have like reason to think he was being threatened? And then it's like the stand your ground laws have kind of this murky thing. Like you can feel threatened when you're not being threatened. Are you allowed to stand your ground? Right. 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 So Do you have, like, um, do you have like reasonable cause to think you were threatened? Yeah. Right. Well, someone at your front door, not entering through any other yeah, means, but through your front door yeah. and has not even opened your front door is an example of 
<laughs> not stand your ground. Yeah. <laughs> That's an example of you shot. You are a crazy person who shoots people at the front door. I mean, to right? me, to me, that's what the story looks like. I feel like what will be argued is that there's all these people that go to your door pretending to be uh, whatever repairman and then they enter. And I, whatever. I, I, I see why yeah. you're making that argument. And I do think they're going to yeah. make that argument on his behalf. Yeah. I think they're trying to smear stand your ground laws. And to me, this is so clearly not a case of stand yeah, your yeah, ground yeah. that yeah. is being merely used to try to like make fun of stand your ground laws. Oh, interesting. And okay. I don't think I think we could have a good debate about that. I yeah. just don't think um, this is a case that yeah. actually smears stand your ground laws. This yeah. is a case of a crazy guy yeah. shooting a guy at the front door. But the interesting thing is not that somewhere in our nation there's either a racist guy no. or a crazy guy who right. shoots people at their front door because we're just big enough that statistically you think gonna, there yeah. would be. You know, yeah. like when you have 330 million people. What's the natural rate of psychopathic serial killers in that population? Yeah, yeah. It's more than one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so the weird thing is, I think what you're getting ready to yeah. say. What, what did so, I cut you off from? This kid somehow <laughs> uh, dragged himself to another person's house to ask for help. And instead of calling the police, they turned him away. And then a second person did the same. And then a third person did the same. That is the story. Yeah. The story here is not that people get stabbed in front of Starbucks or that someone rando yeah. shoots a guy at the front door. The story is that Americans like afraid are afraid, afraid to intervene in situations. Yeah. And there was a similar story during the big Buffalo blizzard where this guy uh, had his friend coming over that night and he was safe at home, but he decided to go out and try to save his friend who got stranded, right? He didn't even get to his friend, but he got stranded. Mm -hmm. And then he finds an old man in a car who's freezing to death. He takes that man and they start knocking on doors and no one will take him in. And he starts offering people hundreds of dollars to merely stay yeah. on their floor yeah. until the blizzard recedes. Right. No one will take him in. And he ends up breaking into an elementary school and then going back out and saving. I think it was 23 people wow. out of their cars, dragging them to the elementary school so they can survive this. Yeah. Right. And then when the whole thing's over, it said that the people who turned him away went crying to him, apologizing that they had turned him away. Yeah. Right? Now, I'm not blaming those people too much. Yeah. There's something that's happened in our society where we're scared. Yeah. You know, we're scared of the unknown. We're scared of getting involved. We're scared of probably the liability. We're scared yeah. of this guy being a psychopath. You know, I don't know what to say about that, but that is a decay in our yeah. society. And trying to figure out the root of that yeah. would be valuable. And I also want to throw out here that the two most normal paradigms are everything is going to heck all the time mm -hmm. or everything's progressing better all the time, mm -hmm. right? Urban decay has happened before. Yeah. Right? The 70s were an enormous uh, case of urban decay. Yeah. You know, there were riots at the beginning of the 70s, just like there were the BLM riots in 2020. Cities took an enormous step back in safety. People all fled the cities. This was a case of great urban decay. Yeah. And I think what we're experiencing now is a much lighter case. Um, you know, you could also blame the 70s thing on uh, lead and the gasoline. That's also yeah. one of the theories on there um, that that made people more violent. But it's yeah. Urban decay is real. It's not the first time. It's yeah. not like a historical like thing that never happens. Um, and it does appear to be happening. But always take these uh, anecdotal evidence for it with a grain of salt. Did I just over talk you, Laura? No, no. You're saying, I'm sorry, but over, take the, the anecdotal evidence because it's statistic, because of statistics you're saying. Yeah. And because we, we have more exposure than we did before. 
Which it's interesting because that that is probably a big factor in the urban decay is actually the exposure to, right. to the idea of urban decay. <laughs> well, it's interesting. This is also similar to that Baltimore sex abuse report that like, it's not that there's that much new information. It's that it's the anecdotal information and anecdotal information is sometimes more persuasive than mm-hmm. statistics. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we kind of had a big picture information in 02, but we didn't like sit around and like read the cases of abuse. Yeah. Right. Well, watching like people in the inner city, like get in a fight and stomp someone sometimes creates a much more persuasion yeah. than like looking at like um, st- the general statistics of crime. Yeah. Right. But you want to make your policy more on the general statistics than based on the anecdotal. Yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of wonder if we're more anxious and more fearful because I, I do think like statistics do convince people. I, I remember there was an argument at the school during the earlier days of COVID about a certain measure, you know, if it was like too much or not enough, you know, and <laughs> and this dad wanted to say like, but only 20 children in Maryland have died from COVID or something like that. And it was like, you can't say that number because we're, you know, it seems like it needs to be a zero. Yeah, exactly. And so he was saying like, this is so statistically low this, you know, um, but it was like, <laughs> once I yeah, heard, no, like you're, you're kind of yeah. making the point. It's like yeah. statistics aren't persuasive. Anecdotal things are persuasive. No, but I, well, statistics, they, we don't like um, interpret them well. Right. Because 20 sounds too high when it's actually very low or another number could sound low when it's actually very hot. You know, I just like think we don't have a good. Right. And this has to do yeah. with your kidnapping problem also. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. two sounds high when it's kidnapping. Right. By a exactly. Stranger, you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah. So, yeah. So that is kind of interesting. And that kind of goes into this idea of extremism. Mm-hmm. Boom, boom, boom. We've got to talk about China and Seth Rogen, <laughs> which have nothing to do with each other except extremism. All right. <laughs> so I follow China very closely. And mm-hmm. a lot of the people I followed had were commenting on um, the French president Macron visiting China. Right. And the argument was he should not be doing this. So China recap has some pretty bad things going on. Just to mention like three that bother me would be like there's about a million Uyghurs who are Muslim minority in China who are in concentration camps being used as slave labor. And we know this. It's leaked out. Yeah. We have the case files. We have like what they're accused of, their sentences. They're accused of things like owning a Quran. Then they'll get 15 years uh, growing a beard. I mean, uh, I think also that they're being used as slave labor doesn't capture the whole thing. There's like a slow genocide of the Uyghur people happening too. Like, right. right. But being- genocide um, means also cultural extinction. It doesn't just mean um, literally killing them. To me, slavery sounds worse than that. That's okay, why. Well, what that about forced genocide. sterilization, which they're doing? Oh, I, forced sterilization. Yeah. Right. And there's also, I mean, and to really weird you out, they've been sending Chinese men into the homes after they send the dad to the forced labor. Yeah. And the man is supposed to live with the woman in that as home. As a husband. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they say it's to teach her how to be Chinese, but really it's disgusting. Rape yeah. and all types of other things, yeah. right? So that's bad. Mm-hmm. That's acknowledged by almost the whole world. Mm-hmm. You know, the US has been working on it, even though you don't ever hear about it, but the US actually has, you know, banned importing products from that province. Mm-hmm. You know. All right. Another thing would be Tibet. Another thing would be, you know, Hong Kong civil rights. Another yeah. thing would be 
this is terrible, but like they have an organ transplant industry where they kill prisoners in order to get the organs. Yeah. That's bad too, right? All right. So the argument then is (laughs) Macron should not be going there, right? And I, I immediately thought of Trump talking to the North Korean dictator and i thought i was very happy you talked to that guy yeah that guy is every bit as bad or worse than what's happening in china yeah you know um but i i think you want to talk to your enemies yeah right um so i'm like i'm kind of supporting macron i'm like i'm kind of happy he went but i started thinking like but how do you respond to these things like so he's going to talk to them right but like do you do like a hundred percent trade do you say hey we're not going to work with you at all because you are too horrible which is a weird statement because there's a billion Chinese people, like yeah. a fifth of all people, yeah. right? So it's like, and not all the billion are doing this, yeah. right? And the other billion who are innocent are have a right to like earn a wage and feed their family, yeah. you know? And I started to wonder, would a more Catholic social policy, this is going to sound very uh, unsatisfactory, mm-hmm. but <laughs> like, what if we just said, look, because you're doing the Uyghur genocide and slavery, 2% tariff on all your goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not just the Uyghur goods. Oh, because you're doing this to Tibet, two yeah. percent tariff. Because you're doing this to Hong Kong, two percent yeah. tariff. Because you're until you fix your Oregon thing, two percent tariff. And then all of a sudden you got ten, twelve, fourteen <laughs> percent. Right, yeah. yeah. But then, like you say, if you satisfy us that you resolve an issue, we will decrease the tariff yeah. by X, two percent. Mm-hmm. I'm using that randomly, yeah. right? Um, and then you're kind of saying like we have this sliding scale, mm-hmm. and the better you do, the less we'll tax goods that you make. You know yeah. what I mean? And what you've inadvertently done is you've incentivized every producer and rich guy and factory owner in China to start pressuring yeah. to resolve these issues. Yeah. So you get allies you know? within the country. <laughs> right. Whereas yeah. if you like blockade the country, you almost incentivize everyone to circle the wagons and become self-reliant and to view you as a new Cold War enemy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there, but there's something like very unsatisfying about what I'm saying but I think there's something Catholic about what I'm saying. Cause like if th- what reminds me is like, I feel like pragmatism is in Catholicism everywhere mm-hmm. and it's very unsatisfactory mm-hmm. when people discover it. Mm-hmm. It's like, if I look, I checked to make sure I was right on this this morning because my memory was that just war theory is kind of unsatisfying because mm-hmm. one of the principles of just war theory is can you win? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Because if you can't win, you can't just kill all your fight. people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like we say we like things like live free or die. Yeah, yeah. And it's like Catholics like, actually, keep living even if you're not free. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't die for nothing. Uh, you, I'm not supposed to. You you can die for a cause, right? But it's like you don't put your whole family and nation under suffering for your cause if it's like Hopeless, right? That's the idea. Yeah, hopeless, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't. I mean, you're you can sacrifice yourself and go to war yeah. for causes, but not if it's hopeless, right? So yeah. I think there's that's just kind of weirdly pragmatic because I mean it's not like the Ten Commandments where it's like don't lie, yeah, ever, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like no, this is actually you have to actually do a calculation here. Will yeah, it work? yeah. I I think um like there's a. Thing that it makes me think of like Ryan and I have always both been kind of like, ah, candidates are terrible. I'm not voting or something. <laughs> and there's just something like it's like you have to like get in the fight a little bit. And the parallel maybe 
like in a lot of cultures, you don't send like your holy man to war, right? Because he has a different role. But, you know, <laughs> like the the lay person is the fighter. And it's like you want your holy man to a be available, but also to like keep his soul like spotless. And um, there's going to be like some ugly things that happen in war. Oh, are you saying that like holy people are allowed to be extremists? No, I'm saying I'm trying to say I'm not saying that they're allowed to be extremists. I'm saying that it's like you're a lay person with kids with like concerns of the world, right? You can't leave the concerns of the world if you're not a hermit, you know, yeah, like prag- pragmatism is actually part of, but I even think with hermits, it's, I, I don't think there's an exclusion for the holy people. Like I think, um, hermits have to be very pragmatic also, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's just part of life. I, it seems to be something God built into our life, not to be just absolutist. <laughs> A priest votes in an election, right? So I'm not saying it's like the priest shouldn't vote or, you know, but I, I, I think that it's like there's like a the lay person who is living in the world has to get in, in the fight. And you can't like I think when you have views that are too lofty or like ideological or you have like kind of like I think it's like as Catholics, we have a very beautiful vision of the kingdom of God and of what we want the world to be. And it's like frustrating because when you're in like community issues or elections or whatever it's like not that right you have to like vote for something that is not well let me let me rephrase what you're saying and i think i agree mm-hmm. with you so i think that like there is a place for a philosopher or a priest or even for a layperson to have a discussion about what is the perfect catholic society mm-hmm. what is the perfect catholic set of laws yeah but you're actually not doing politics you're actually not doing anything practical with that you're yeah. just talking about some idealistic like idea but politics is and foreign policy and all these things is the science of here to there. Yeah. Like how, how do we get from here to there? And if you're just talking about there and never talking about how to get from here to there, you're actually not doing politics. Well, and it's, right. I think it's like a form of like a comfortable, like escapism or something. You're not actually dealing right. with the problem. You're what you call a utopian dreamer. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we can't shy away from that practical. Yeah. Like if you want to, decrease abortion you can't just like turn away from every conversation that would lead to a 10 percent decrease because it's not a hundred yeah you know right otherwise you're just kind of living in a la-la land and not actually trying to make progress yeah. you know yeah. in the real world yeah but let's talk about this because it was interesting when we were talking about this you immediately went to this uh seth oh, yeah. rogan movie <laughs> set the stage it's called uh we're gonna have ben play a clip okay, here in a minute okay go ahead i so i enjoyed this movie it's it's got some inappropriate uh humor and a lot of cuss words. So Seth Rogen, who I think in real life is like a fairly liberal person, um, is this uh, very like idealistic reporter and journalist and his like independent newspaper company gets bought out by a bigger media company that is suspiciously like Fox (laughs) News. Um, And so he has a fit and he quits because he cannot work for um, Fox News. And so he's kind of this like down and out guy who doesn't know how to dress well or whatever. And he reconnects with childhood friend who's like a presidential hopeful, <laughs> who's obviously very put together, very type A. And and he becomes her speechwriter. Everything unfolds from there. Uh, and so they he, fall in love. Uh, it's it's wonderful. Um, a great 
side plot of the movie is that he's got this like best friend who's like he's he's a black guy. They've been best friends since college. He's got this like successful business where he hires like all these people and can give them the whole day off at a whim because the company's so successful, you know, and he's like in Seth Rogen's corner the whole movie. So he, he's he's encouraging him to go for it. Go, yeah. Even like, though you're just a yeah. unemployed journalist. <laughs> Go go date this presidential candidate. Yeah, yeah. Right? The whole, like the you got to take yeah. your life not by just, the not just dating this, but reins. he's like, yeah, uh, like look at me, like I pulled myself up, I did this, you can do it. And so every part of his life, he's like rooting for Seth Rogen. He's like, you can do it. You are worthy, man. Um, so it's great. I think you just set the stage well. I had to censor this clip quite a bit to be Simpleton podcast friendly. So all of the cuts and audio are curse words. You could probably fill in the gaps, but you'll get the gist of the clip. What the f- I was thinking, why the f- I thought someone like her and someone like me could work. She's a f- politician. Like, I don't even know her. Like, I don't know who she is. She has no moral compass. She's working with Democrats one day, Republicans the next day. I mean, what's wrong with working with Democrats and Republicans? Like, that's, that's the whole country. Uh, yeah, except Republicans, I guess, is the problem with that. Speaking as an American, shouldn't you see both sides? Yeah, I see one side's wrong. <laughs> what, what's the problem here? I'm a Republican. Joking right now. Member of the GOP. Yeah, you know me. You're a Republican. Yeah, I'm a Republican. It just worked out so far for me. What the f- man? All that you're always saying to me. Yeah. Oh, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and being in charge of your own destiny? Republican. Oh, and it worked on me. And it works on a lot of people. Oh, that's sick. That's right. Oh, that's gross. That's that Republican. You put it in my brain and it made me feel good. That's up, man? Come on, see, this is what I'm talking about, your negative way of thinking. I don't even know you! What do you mean? Oh. I'm the same dude from two minutes ago, your best friend. Why did you never tell me this? Because I knew you act exactly how you're acting right now. Wait a minute. You're always talking about how, like, the universe has a plan for all of us. I could take it easy, Does man. That, there's someone watching over us at all times. Yeah. Does that mean I'm a man of Christian faith? What? Yes. The now, come on now, we pray for you. Don't pray for me, keep it. Lord. Oh, stop it. Ignore it, God. It doesn't mean that. Don't pray you for me. You are tripping right now. I'm not tripping. How can you be Christian? I wear this cross every day since you've known me. What'd you think it was for? I thought it was a cultural thing. You mean like, cause I'm black? That's what I thought, yeah. That might be. But that don't mean what you said ain't racist. You're right. Yeah, I know I'm right. That's racist. All right, dude. I love you, man. But you're very judgmental. I didn't want politics to get into this because you've never really been good at looking at from other people's perspective, Fred. I know. It might explain why you haven't been able to look at this through Charlotte's eyes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you couldn't be who you are around me and you had to hide your true self. That's really f***ed up. It's all right, man. But my love for the GOP and the G.O.D.? has nothing to do with us. I'm racist. You're a Republican. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) So this is great because this is an example of the political extremism just being spoofed, right? But like, I think we all know that that can happen. Yeah. You know, exactly the way that was done, right? Yeah. So um, anyway, so... What are we saying here? We're just saying that a Catholic policy is going to be realistic. It's going to be about how to get 
things done. Mm-hmm. It's going to be based in the real world. And that's not non-Catholic to be pragmatic. Right. You keep your moral compass, obviously, but like it might not always feel that good, you know? Right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for tuning in to the Simpleton Podcast. Like, subscribe, share, give us feedback. Please comment. Um, We do kind of take any feedback seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, look forward to hearing from you. Um, And until next time. See you later, Clark. ready for this? Uh, bum, 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 b